Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Jihadi Recollections. I'm Jesse Morton, once an American jihadi propagandist that ran Revolution Muslim, a New York City-based organization that helped set the template and methodology for jihadist often online recruitment in the West. Here, I sit with experts, academics, activists, and the like to discuss the jihadi social movement, subculture, and radicalization and extremism writ large. Jihadi Recollections takes a deep dive into the jihadosphere, challenging conventional belief and painting a vivid portrait helpful for those interested in or tasked with understanding and combating the complex threat, radicalization, and extremism posed to the liberal world order, an order most have come to take for granted. Welcome back to another episode of Jihadi Recollections. I am here today with Dr. Michael Crona, who serves as a senior lecturer at the School of Arts and Communication at Malmo University in Sweden. He's a specialist in ISIS communications and is keen uh, to study uh, the presence of ISIS uh, online, in particular the darknet platforms that they now predominantly focus their uh, communications and their propaganda within, not just Telegram, but now moving to other platforms like Hoop. And there's very few specialists in the world that have an expertise in this matter. And so we're very pleased to have Michael Crona with us today. Michael, I guess you'd start uh, with a bit of your background. Uh, what got you interested in the field, how you ended up studying uh, ISIS's communication strategy, and uh, a little bit about yourself uh, personally. Yeah, of course. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I started off, um, I mean, in academic research uh, about 15 years ago, and I did my PhD here in Sweden. Uh, and around the time of 2011 uh, and the uh, Syrian civil war, uh, I started looking at the Arab Spring and how the activists were using uh, various platforms uh, in order to promote democracy and how they mobilized. Um, so I had, a, and I published a few things about the Arab Spring and from a media perspective, I think the, the sort of the activist tactics that they used in order to promote democracy were quite interesting. So I published a few things on that. And then 2013 and 14, ISIS came along and since I, Kind of knew the Arab media landscape and I was interested in how all of a sudden an organization uh, came to uh, the global uh, or got global attention by using the same social media platforms that we so heavily cherished and celebrated during the Arab Spring but now with a completely different purpose. So I was interested in that turn on how we viewed technology because when we looked at when technology sort of promotes freedom and democracy, we celebrate it, but when extremist groups use it, we try to ban it. So I, I'm just interested in that. So that's my academic path into, into the field. And um, from 2014, I, I basically studied the Islamic State. Uh, I started monitoring open social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, of course. Uh, but as many people know, after a few years, they uh, moved and migrated much of their communication to encrypted platforms. And um, since that move, when I started really utilizing Telegram as a platform, late 2015, early 2016, I think, that's really when my work uh, really started to kick off and, and it became both much more interesting but also much more challenging. And I think maybe we can come back to those type of uh, challenges later. But but it, that has really been my academic path into this field. 
Beautiful. Thank you very much for for giving us that background. It is quite interesting when you look at the evolution of jihadi propaganda. Uh, I remember when I was a radicalizer and a recruiter, I was active from about 2003 as a sort of someone who actually had influence until 2011. I was arrested in Morocco two weeks after Osama bin Laden was killed in Abbottabad in the middle of... Um, the entire focus of attention became how do we deal with the utilization of social media from extremist organizations. But there was quite a precedent for it beforehand. And this delicate balancing of the protection of individual rights of free expression uh, and then the uh, utilization of social media to disseminate terrorist content, it always seems like the jihadists have been one step ahead of the game. And I think that as we focused in about 2015 and ISIS announced its caliphate and the entire world sort of focused on this uh, sort of stunning, it seemed like it came out of nowhere, uh, the jihadi ecosystem for media communication and Mm. propaganda. Uh, Everyone became sort of obsessed with this as if it was something new. Uh, But that's in fact not the case. Can you talk just a little bit to segue into our conversation about the evolution of jihadi propaganda and bringing us up to the current state of affairs now, particularly with reference to the massive takedown that occurred in Telegram uh, and now the ability of the organization to adapt uh, and moving to other platforms, how successful they've been and some of the key components of their adaptation, how uh, a lot of times we uh, present the jihadist strategy as if they're sort of seven feet tall, don't make any mistakes. Are they on the wane uh, or do you think that they've proven very resilient and adaptable uh, under current conditions and what that might entail for the future of online propaganda uh, in general? Yeah, it's a, it's a very complex uh, question. Let me try to break it down. Uh, the evolution of uh, jihadi media it goes way back, 30 years or something. Uh, of course, it changed when we, in the mid-90s, started to get into internet technologies, and we talked about Web 2.0 coming on. Um, but, I mean, using the contemporary technological sort of um, uh, platforms in order to promote messaging and recruit and inspire that has been there for for several decades and i i totally agree with you that much of the discussion and i have noticed that a lot when it comes to in particular isis that we seem to believe that they are groundbreaking in the sense that they are using technology or using it massively which is I mean, it's both correct and incorrect. It's not groundbreaking in the sense that terrorist organizations have used this for a long time, both from the right wing and from the more jihadist scenes. So that evolution goes long way back. And I also think it's a general public, uh, often a misconception that ISIS in uh, sort of um, started or came along in 2014 only, the, the evolution of ISIS and its Uh, sort of its trajectory to develop what it became back then goes back about 15 years. So it's it's also 15 years of developing media strategies. So we see the climax of it in around 2014, 2015, when they managed to have uh, an extremely strong presence on Twitter, for instance, before Twitter started to 
to uh, censor more heavily. Um, they had hundreds of thousands of sort of accounts or based on uh, uh, bot systems to promote their messages as well. So it's just that the technology that came in 2014 that they started using, that was just a technology that made them have a more vast reach of their message. That's a, a sort of a quantitative aspect of it. The more qualitative when it comes to the messaging, the narratives that they have promoted, that's when it becomes more interesting, I believe, to, to discuss how they separate from previous groups or other contemporary groups at the time. And as, as a media researcher, it has been hugely interesting to look at how these narratives are so deliberately tailored uh, and uh, segmented and targeted to specific audiences. Um, that I haven't really seen before. Uh, I'm not an expert in the history of jihadists, but I have not seen that type of awareness of their messaging in who to try to reach, how they try to reach it, and what are the implications or effects of that type of media campaigns. Um, so I believe that when it comes to, if we talk about their success in using media operations, I don't like to talk about success because it sort of promotes their, their, um, uh, their brand, but they have been successful and to some extent still are in order to adapt, I believe. You asked me before whether or not they knew what they were doing. My impression is that the obstacles that have came along in the last six years, they have had, of course, setbacks, but they have managed quite fast to maintain the online presence, to maintain the narratives, to adapt the narratives to political circumstances, and still have a quite strong brand online, uh, which goes in line with um, the, the perception of success. So they have focused a lot on propaganda that that exhibits successful operations or uh, but because when there is a success in, in an organization there's also an interest in new recruits so and that goes along so that's why the media operations are really important i believe um but the takedown on telegram finally uh, which happened uh, the major takedown on telegram which happened i think it was in november last year i think that showed uh, two things. It showed that authorities and intelligence services have the capability of reducing their output when they coordinate their efforts, but it at the same time shows that given some time, uh, they, uh, groups like ISIS still have the human resources uh, to actually uh, take that obstacle and make it into a new possibility, which in, in practice means that after Telegram takedown happened in November last year, they expanded to hundreds of platforms because the, the major communication practices, both especially by supporters, were based on Telegram and they were quite isolated there. And, and people like myself who, who follow them, it was quite easy to monitor them there. But when they expanded early 2020, uh, it became much more fragmented, much more difficult. Um, and since then, I see a development where this expansion is not necessarily gro growing even further, but 
they are still very active on a number of platforms, which I think is alarming when we look at the fact that one of the triggers for that expansion was actually an intention to shut them down. So my impression is that they are very, very flexible. They adapt to circumstances. And as long as they have a global network of supporters who in one way or another feel included, this is going to continue. I hope that sort of answers your question. Yeah, for sure. And it sets a very good stage because I think when we talk about researching jihadism, I think that there is in the field of radicalization studies in general, a lot of problems with understanding complexities. Mm. And there's this assumption that social media in and of itself is responsible for the radicalization and the recruitment of individuals. But I would argue that in periods of sort of decline, in periods when a jihadist or an extremist organization in general is perceived to be suffering on the battlefield or suffering in the real world, then the objective of propagandists is to merely stay alive and to sustain the support of those that already support them. The contention of taking them down from platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and now Telegram uh, is that you can eradicate the initial recruitment. Uh, mm. because there won't be new recruits that will come onto the message haphazardly on platforms that they're probably there not to find jihadist uh, mm. information. However, I'm not so sure that those are the that social media in and of itself is the primary variable. I think it's a vehicle. Uh, we used to use a term from Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, the classical uh, medieval scholar, who said that it's not the objective of the one calling to, quote unquote, the truth. Uh, to make everyone convert to it. It is the objective of the propagandist or the one calling to the truth to make the truth accessible to those that seek it. And I would argue that context is very important, that mainstream media is very important in creating an interest and the initial thirst to find the content or to have the message resonate. And that if someone is open and susceptible to finding the ideas, no matter what you do in 2020 or going forward to suppress uh, access to that message, people will be able to find it. And one of the things that I fear is a general transition from amongst the uh, population of the world away from a more decentralization, if you will, of, uh, of primary utilization of Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for mm. information and more uh, access to uh, outlets like TikTok, like Hoop, like Telegram. And so I don't think that you can really suppress the message, and I'm not sure how you feel about the ultimate consequence. I mean, a lot of people would argue that taking them down off Telegram merely made it harder to monitor and didn't necessarily hinder uh, the committed's ability to access the message. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the evidence that is uh, in the space of the connection between social media radicalization and recruitment, uh, and then some of the strategies and how you feel the ultimate consequences of targeting uh, a process that is heavily uh, focused on taking down content as opposed to combating and challenging content um, and uh, as opposed to paying attention to the other variables such as mainstream media coverage, such as just the context of, uh, of, of, of military success, but also can be framed as part of a long-term war of attrition. Um, and I know that this is sort of an ocean of, of conversation as well, but maybe just a little bit on what you observe with regard to the strategies that have been utilized to thwart and to hinder radicalization online and whether or not uh, the thinking in the space 
uh, and the strategy in the space is informed by the actual evidence. A lot of people contend that there really is no evidence that social media in and of itself is responsible for initial uh, radicalization into eventually violent extremism. Thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, it's I mean, it's my uh, starting point in any discussion about technology that um, technology is it's not neutral, but it, it it's not a, a an active agent of uh, a development. A technology is basically just like religion. Whatever you take into religion or whatever you take into using technology, that forms your relationship with it. So technology in itself and saying that social media platforms are key responsible for recruitment, that's, in my opinion, totally false. And it's it's not a constructive way of looking at it. Instead, I would say that I mean, I can understand that the initial political um, sort of response to uh, the current situation, or let's let's say the last five years of, of expansion by ISIS on social media, is to take down and to put pressure on technological companies to take down. But that's also because any other aspect, let's say mainstream coverage, as you mentioned, or to have a more... Um, other way of, or, or sort of a way of forming political discourse, or to have counter narratives as you work with, that's something that is much more complex than to say, let's take this down. Uh, because the implications or the consequences of taking down platforms, channels, accounts are much more vast than I think many people understand. When we start to interfere with I'm not justifying or, or saying that ISIS promote freedom of expression, but there is this very complex area of what are the larger consequences from a societal point of view if we view technology as a responsible in some way for what human people are using it for. So my my take is that a lot more focus needs to be put on those areas of counter uh, measures that may seem as much more long-term, much more difficult or much more complex, but they are the only ones that in the long run, I believe, will actually help. For instance, to create a, a forum or messaging on, on how, how do journalists or mainstream media cover this organization, or how do we as academics actually write about them? Because when I publish a book about ISIS and how amazing or how many dimensions they have in their media operations, I actually give them a platform and I promote their agenda. So that's an ethical discussion that I think to, needs to take place in many parts of society. And that's more difficult than taking it down. But I still believe that that's the right way to go and to develop more effective counter campaigns and narratives. Very good. I mean, and I think that that is a point well heated because I think takedown is an important strategy at first. But I think when we talk about the ultimate end, if you will, not that that's possible, but the mitigation mm. of an ability for ISIS and groups like Al-Qaeda to resurrect itself, particularly right now, with regard to all of the variables that would create susceptibility to extremism, all of the geopolitical shifts that mm. are going on. We really have to concern ourselves with the ability to counter an eventual resurrection, and we haven't been very proactive in dealing with that. Um, I would argue that we need a holistic strategy in the same way that ISIS offers a holistic strategy. It's not yeah, just exactly. messaging, right? And so we need to add more tools to the toolbox, if you will. And those are some of the things that we do try to, you know, sort of 
specialize in and add some of that ability to take counter narrative work to connect it to individual interventions to take those successful interventions and to utilize that to create more uh, yeah. counter media and then to to roll that into giving people something else to belong to that offers the same sense of meaning significance and purpose that extremists offer their recruits but that is built on antithetical principles yeah. and that in my opinion is one of the biggest obstacles is because it has Due to the way that we have approached the war on terror, it's very hard to argue to a person in the Middle East uh, that you should support uh, democracy. Uh, if you look at polling mm. uh, done by Scott Atran and his organization, Artis in Mosul, for example, there's almost zero support uh, for democracy and individual rights. What they want is a non-sectarian government, but they want it based on Sharia law uh, yeah. because of the dissemination. And so now we enter into this phase where I think the future of the Middle East and what we, what we see IC is very keen to, uh, to do is to get a presence in Africa, because whether you're China, America, or ISIS, you do consider Africa potentially as the space where the future of the geopolitical reality, uh, yeah will evolve. And so I think it's about adding those other tools to the toolbox. But I do also think it's important to try to thwart the ability uh, of ISIS to disseminate their message, but it can be counterproductive, uh, as yeah. you suggested. Can you tell us, uh, having been the editor uh, of a very uh, interesting book that I have not completed, but did start to dig into the media world of ISIS, which you edited with Rosemary Pennington, can you tell us a little bit about um, what uh, was learned, what was arrived, what we can find in that book for those that want to get uh, a better understanding of background, especially young researchers. Um, can you tell us about the content of that book and some of its key revelations? Yeah, the, that book is actually quite, uh, it's, it's almost the equivalent of what you just mentioned when it comes to creating a holistic understanding or a holistic approach to countering. Because what we try to do in this volume is that we saw at the time when we started, we started writing in 2016, 2017, that there were a number of academic publications, of course, journal articles and some monographs and books that focused on one specific thing uh, that went really in depth, uh, whether it was the visual propaganda of ISIS or if it was the network from a technological point of view. So what we tried to do in this book was to compile a holistic uh, framework for understanding the, the, the trajectory and development of the title of the book, The Media World of ISIS, where we include chapters and contributors from uh, various disciplines uh, to uh, write chapters uh, on a specific topic and then compile it into a volume. And the topics, the topics we cover goes from the ideological uh, sort of history of ISIS it goes uh, through how this ideology and how religion are being mediated, what happens in the mediation process uh, when, for instance, um, Islamic scripture is being uh, presented in a visual form. Uh, we include chapters on the uh, technological networks uh, that they utilize, uh, their reliance on supporters around the world in terms of their so-called media um, there are so-called media mujahids, like the media warriors. Um, and finally, also, we discuss some form of um, understanding for 
uh, effective counter campaigns or ideas for effective counter campaigns. Um, so it's it's a book that really presents or introduces the various dimensions of this rich field that is the media world of ISIS. And I think, especially for young researchers, it can be really useful to uh, dig into and try to, through the book, uh, create a, a, a basic understanding of this vastness of, of uh, ISIS media operations. And, of course, there are many books on the topic. I'm not going to say ours is the best, but it, our attempt is to really present a holistic understanding because there are so many dimensions. Individual um, contributions that are being published regularly now uh, from um, ISIS researchers are extremely important as well, but they are in-depth on a specific thing. This book is a bit wider and hopefully interesting. So if, as a young researcher, if you're planning your PhD uh, or anything, on this topic, I think the book can provide a good understanding to start from. Very good. Thank you so much for that. And I will post the link to that uh, edited volume. Um, I have not, as I said, completed it yet, but it is very interesting and does offer a diverse range uh, of opinions and foci uh, with regard to how it looks at the transmedia ecosystem of ISIS. So strong mm -hmm. recommendations to read that. Let's transition a little bit and talk about propaganda communication strategy of ISIS going forward, um, particularly in lieu of what we see unfolding in the world right now. You have a COVID-19 pandemic that has been commented on as a soldier of Allah, uh, part and parcel in the framing of Al-Qaeda, a bit distinction between ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is framing it more as a uh, part of its uh, war of attrition strategy, which Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi also adopted the term. And that's a reference to bin Laden's actual plan uh, going way back to 2004 when he announced that the reason that they were fighting us was not for human rights and democracy, but because of how the West intervenes in the uh, Arab world, props up authoritarian dictatorships, which of course is an, a resonant message to justify attacks in the West, and then said that we're fighting you like we're fighting the Soviets. We fought the Soviets for 10 years in Afghanistan, and all we have to do now is raise the black flag of Al-Qaeda uh, and send two soldiers to raise the black flag of Al-Qaeda, and the United States will exhaust military resources uh, that will only benefit its multinational corporations. And the implications for that was, and I know as someone who had contact with the strategists, the charismatic preachers, and what the long-term strategy was, was Al-Qaeda knew they couldn't defeat the U.S. militarily and ultimately yeah. fragmented into ISIS. But they wanted to create disorder at home to show the hypocrisies of democracy and so that democracy and individual freedoms could not resonate in the Middle East. And their objective was to pit polarization at home in the West so that democracies would essentially be rendered inoperable and so that they could no longer interfere in the Middle East. And as a consequence of COVID-19 and as a consequence of the developments that occurred previously before that with regard to thwarting ISIS, I would say that a strong contention could be made that when you look at sort of the long-term planning of uh, Al-Qaeda, we had releases um, early into the war that looked at a 20-year plan that if you look at what has occurred uh, over the past 15 years since the release of that document, they're pretty much lined up to attain their objectives. 
Um, not necessarily the case with regard to whether or not they're actually doing the bidding of establishing Sharia law uh, and a global Islamic uh, caliphate in the Middle East, or whether or not they're just doing the bidding of authoritarian regimes such as Russia and China, who are exerting more influence in the Middle East as a result of our waning ability to convey a narrative. Uh, and all of these complications that are going forward. And ISIS in the midst of all of that um, has been slowly but surely regrouping. And we're starting to see uh, evidence uh, in Mozambique, in West Africa, rising number of posts, which you alluded to on your Twitter feed, which we see mm -hmm. as well with regard to operations carried out in Iraq. And so in no way, shape or form is the enemy dead, but also in no way, shape or form is there a heavy concentration in the field of countering violent extremism any longer on jihadists. It seems like everything is shifted to the domestic ambit. And I w might add that that is totally uh, conducive to the long term strategy and the plans uh, of ISIS. When they look at far right wing extremists carrying out terrorist attacks against their own governments, when they look at the protests, they comment frequently on them as indications of of decline. And so when you see commentary in ISIS chat rooms, Arabic, English, and in uh, other languages, um, how much reference do you think they're giving uh, to the current context? And do you think that they feel like they are in defeat? Or do you think they feel like this is part of a passing phase that they'll ultimately be able to resurrect themselves out of nowhere? Sort of like we saw them burst onto the world stage with the split between Al-Qaeda and ISIS back in 2015 when ISIS prepared to announce their caliphate. And we then had to proceed to deal with that uh, mm. for exhausting a lot of resources and exhausting a lot of efforts. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's... It's interesting to see the the development of these type of um, discussions, and uh, as you also put it uh, quite eloquently here, the 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 ambitions or the the visions or strategies for ISIS in the midst of a very complicated region right now with a lot of actors, and um, that's quite um, interesting to uh, mirror when you look at the chat rooms and forums and discussions among the uh, regular, in brackets, uh, supporters. Because what I have seen over the last six years, um, it could be good to know also that I follow, I have followed these forums and monitored these chat rooms almost on a daily basis for several years now. So uh, I have seen differences in how they express themselves, what are the talking points and how do they sort of um, perceive the organization. And in the last, I mean, the COVID-19 situation is one thing, uh, but aside from that, I think the, the expansion and operations in the African continent, for instance, is something that is not really being discussed on an individual supporter level. What is discussed there is rather the, as I said earlier, the, the organization as a whole the idea of the caliphate, the ideological construction of the caliphate is still very strong, despite the losses of landmass. Um, and also, they discuss ways forward. And the majority, or should I say, the dominant discourse among supporters, whether it's in Arabic or in English or in French or in German, it's actually that there is no... Um, I don't see any real fear that they are... Uh, decreasing in significance. They feel more and more empowered as supporters and as participants in this movement that is the Islamic State for them. Um, they see themselves as 
really important in the media struggles. They uh, produce, I mean, the production of propaganda that are being produced by supporters uh, rather than the official organization and media departments have increased significantly. And that's everything from pamphlets to uh, posters to videos to photographs. It's it's quite extraordinary to see the online communities grow with a sense of strength still and sense of looking forward rather than looking backwards. I mean, narratives of retaliation and as you said before, the strong core narrative about how the West has interfered in the Middle East, that's always there. But in time, and especially during this year, I don't see any decline. I don't see any doubts. There is, for instance, when it comes to the the split between Al-Qaeda and, um, and ISIS and the ideological um, differences, and now also including the Taliban movement's uh, connection to the U.S., that is being discussed quite heavily. But those discussions among ISIS supporters are predominantly focusing on isolating themselves from Al-Qaeda, from the Taliban. They don't see them as pure. They see ISIS only. And that uh, sort of incubation of self-belief is quite remarkable. So that's my overall observation at this point, among uh, looking at maybe 200 uh, channels or chat rooms that I follow. Very good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating for people that um, do uh, try to understand this realm of extremism to see how it is very important to have the in-group, out-group yeah. with regard to the kuffar and the believers, but it's all the more important and all the more interesting inside the jihadi milieu to see the in-group, out-group amongst the in-group, so to say. Yeah, exactly. So the eligible in-group and, the, uh, and, and, and then their demonization once they don't accept mm. the narrative of nice. He says Jam Berger has, I think, really interestingly framed uh, an attempt to set some parameters around defining violent extremism, how it works, uh, and, and what we need to look for with regard to social yeah. movements that are extremist. And it is it is quite fascinating with regard to ISIS, the zeal uh, because of the extremism, because of the ability to point to the success and because such heavy efforts were placed on delegitimizing Taliban, delegitimizing Al-Qaeda. And I think that was a very um, wise move by uh, by ISIS in the midst of that uh, fracture and, 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 and sort of uh, separation between Al-Qaeda and ISIS to do that because it mm. has made a serious amount of commitment. And that's really in a period of network contraction or of decline. It's really important to have that decentralization. I think what we're seeing is very much with regard to ISIS is very much akin to what we saw with regard to Al-Qaeda when I think the first person that pointed it out in an academic sense was a political scientist in the middle of the Middle East, Mark Lynch, uh, who called it Al-Qaeda's constructivist term. Uh, mm. Meaning that uh, apart from a realism and a top-down hierarchical structure, they had decentralized because they were under assault then uh, in uh, the area of Afghanistan, Waziristan, and Pakistan, and the leadership could not communicate nor direct attacks, that what they had basically uh, sustained themselves through was becoming an idea, an ideology, a, an ideological movement that could be uh, disseminated anywhere in the world, and that all supporters should disseminate to the best of their ability. And I know us living in the United States at that time, and our colleagues in the UK, were able to do things people in the Middle East could have never done, uh, mm. adulterating and, and, and utilizing free expression and the 
preservation of free speech to do so and still to stay within uh, a legal framework. And I think ISIS is basically taking the same turn. And in that sense, we as nodes not directly connected to the network, but uh, loosely affiliated with those charismatic preachers that were, were able to sustain the message because we could produce output that unrivaled the ability of the organization. And that's I don't think ISIS core propaganda is in any way diminished. It's certainly not as powerful uh, as it was. But the rise of the uh, of, of of the supporter uh, and the yeah. enhanced quality and quantity of their messaging uh, mm-hmm. is 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 quite problematic, particularly if context changes. And so if you get another attack uh, on Western soil that could galvanize support and show resilience, or if you get a space, a territory in Mozambique where they took over a port, if that happens in the Arab world, for example, something along those lines, and there's another sanctuary, maybe there's a possibility for a returning uh, wave of migration from west to east. We don't know uh, mm. what will happen, but increasingly we see ISIS becoming more of a message uh, and a movement, a decentralized movement than it was originally designed for. Yeah. Um, and so talking about the future, um, what kind of shifts do you see and how uh, resonant will, will do you believe the, the, the message will remain? And some of the things that researchers and people that are interested in this space should be weary of proactively, because a lot of times in the academic empirically backed community, there needs to be some sort of evidence that then shifts behavior and concentrations onto a particular subject or space. But those like yourself that are still monitoring this when a lot of people have sort of fallen off and many researchers have just simply transitioned what they've learned from jihadism and are now approaching uh, the far right and applying it to the far right. How important is it to keep our eye on the ball here? And what are some of the takeaways from these uh, shifts that have been covered and commented on in academic literature and in journalism, but really might not necessarily be a focus of attention or understood and being uh, grasped with nuance so that research and practice can stay proactive. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, in my experience, the, the necessity of maintaining a close watch on these groups, especially when uh, the media attention is, or the media spotlight is aimed at something else, like the COVID-19, for instance, in the last six months, the importance of actually uh, not believing that groups like ISIS are diminishing just because our mainstream media doesn't talk about them, that's very dangerous. We saw it also after the killing of bin Laden, where people thought that, well, that's the end of, of the jihadist movement, but that actually three years later we got the Islamic State. So I think during the time when we are having challenges in various aspects of society and the media attention and political attention goes down, I think that's when it's most important. That's always been my core in the work I do here, that I am much more vigilant uh, during periods of time when there are not uh, high-profile attacks being discussed, uh, because that's really what I believe when especially, as you said here earlier, about the galvanizing supporters and make them more engaged, that's when it really starting to happen something. And that's when I think the future developments are also being formed. Uh, it's interesting to see how the different challenges, let's take the, the death of Baghdadi, that how that challenge was turned into a a new path or a new direction without actually the organization losing uh, support or anything. There have been no evidence of that. They managed within a few days to present a 
predecessor, even if the information about him up until the last few days actually has been quite um, quite hidden. But still, they managed to maintain the organization after the death of Baghdadi. Uh, and all those challenges, the supporters have been really, really active around, and they have been really supportive around the organization, whatever the challenge have been. So I think that's something we should learn as, as researchers when we study especially the jihadist groups in comparison to the right wing, um, that these are not groups that come and fall depending on um, political opinion or whatever is uh, sort of current at the time. They remain, they have a steady, steady fast uh, sort of uh, ground to stand on. And that ground, I think from now on, what happens with the Islamic State when it comes to presenting more information about their new caliph, what direction do they take, especially now when they have almost greater support than ever before online, not necessarily on the ground, but online. The networks are very, very active. They keep expanding. So Islamic State is entering a new phase under a new leader. And this time, if we compare it to 2014, the vision and strategies may be different, as you said, they have now expanded to other parts of the world. They have left their regional state project. But this time they also have a very, very highly equipped, um, vastly reaching human resources support in terms of online supporters who would do anything and are more engaged than ever, basically, to help spread this movement even further and to emphasize the ideological narratives and messages that also comes out of the official organization. So it's an interesting phase from a, a media research point of view at this point. What happens now with the networks? How much can they expand? How can they keep a cohesive narrative together when it's quite fragmented? But that's really what I'm interested in. And I think it's impo more important than ever not to lose sight of this organization, even if the media doesn't speak about them anymore. <laughs> Yes, I agree. I, I, yeah. I think it's really crucial. And what you said about their resilience and the, uh, the, the amount of support that you witness as you monitor it flies in the face of what most people would assume. Yeah. I think not just the general public, but mainstream media, but even researchers in the space um, have seen such a decline that uh, maybe it's no longer worth monitoring. But in fact, for people that actually do monitor, they are quite uh, adept uh, at adaptation. Yeah. Um, and those that are committed now number, um, it's like we say when we regard to Al-Qaeda, like at the time of 9-11, there's now more Salafi jihadists that are supportive of 9-11 than there were then. Mm. And setting that seed and planting that seed and having that evidence of the uh, establishment of the quote unquote caliphate from 2015 until you know 2019 or however you want to estimate that and then the transition into the virtual caliphate has created a groundswell of support that will never go away because they will find it wherever it exists as yeah. and they will make it exist somewhere online and so online radicalization and violent extremism uh, and studying jihadist narratives utilizing that is a gateway into understanding uh, a lot about uh, preempting uh, resurrection and particularly the importance of not keeping your eye off the ball. In 2011, Bin Laden was dead. Arab Spring crept in. We thought yeah. the democratization of the Middle East was inevitable and everyone took their eye off the ball until Boston Marathon bombings blew up. Syria yeah. turns to jihad. And so these things jihadists are quite used to. 
And if you're part of a movement that doesn't necessarily determine success based upon worldly success, but also considers fulfilling an obligation of proselytizing the message as success in a world to come, it becomes a serious enemy that no one should take their their, their eye off of. And I'm not saying that people aren't monitoring this and researching this, but I do think that there has been a wane uh, in attention. And mm. so I want to transition real briefly before we wrap up with recommendations for people that want to get into this space, what they might concentrate on uh, as young uh, researchers and talk a little bit about the emulation. I know that you're not an expert in far right radicalization or in, you know, uh, that that's not a primary focus at least, mm. but it seems like with regard to increasing concern for taking down content on Facebook and Twitter from uh, far right wing groups in particular, and even now uh, some far leftist groups have been removed in lieu of protest yeah, yeah. and, and, and violence, um, that the adaptation that the far right is showing might not be as savvy uh, as the jihadists, but in some ways attempting to emulate them and with some degree uh, of success. So with regard to extremist organizations being learning organizations and how that impacts, one of the things that's striking to me is that there was a recent arrest uh, of a Boogaloo boy, a far right wing group here in the United States that's anti-government, uh, with regard to their ability and material support, collaboration and cooperation with Hamas, uh, who they perceive mm. to be anti-Israeli, therefore anti-Semitic, therefore right in line with their purposes of uh, dismantling American imperialism and it fits the narrative. But whereas... Islamophobia from conservatives in the far right was a major part of our focus to create the initial polarization. Seems that domestically uh, in the West, a lot of the animosity has turned away from Islamophobia and has turned on to anti-Semitism, running coincident to a willingness of jihadists, so to say, or at least Arab, uh, Arab nationalist entities like Hamas to sort of find similar interests. Uh, with far right organizations that are in the West. And so with regard to how that impacts jihadist uh, media and jihadist understandings, it runs really coincident to what they consider victory in a war of attrition. Um, and they're watching it and sometimes they comment on it, although it's not the focus of their of their attention. But with regard to this learning organization and how to pay attention to these shifts proactively so that they can have research trickle down into policy and to practice, um, what are some of the, uh, if you have any commentary on the uh, replication of jihadist tactics by the far right or the uh, sort of symbiotic relationship between far right wing extremism, reciprocal radicalization, as it's been called in jihadism, um, might we see uh, similarities and objectives amongst domestic extremists and uh, jihadist extremists? And are, in fact, we witnessing sort of a, uh, a replication uh, of the strategy and tactics of jihadists with regard to other forms of extremism on social media? Or is that just simply uh, what anyone uh, would do uh, with regard to uh, the, we sometimes were alarmed with the idea that, oh my God, extremists use social media. Well, why wouldn't they be? Everybody uses social media. Is that just a natural uh, adaptation? Or do you think there's some learning going on between other forms of extremism and even state disinformation campaigns from Russia and China that have been, and Iran that have been very successful as well? Um, it seems like there's a, a, a very serious concern that we should have for social media being turned against us and um, possibly destroying or at least attacking uh, the very principles of liberal societies and democracies that we would think would be uh, the primary ability to, uh, to counter uh, authoritarian, mm -hmm. jihadist and extremist influence. Any comments on such thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's really uh, it's it's really an interesting aspect of it. And even though I'm not uh, focusing on on right wing groups or anything, I believe strongly, and I also see indications of it, not least here in the Nordic countries, that there is a uh, a joint form of of learning and ability to learn from from adversaries and. The far right uh, learns from jihadists, and jihadists are inspired by far right. And there is this quite—I don't know—it I wouldn't call it a strange uh, collaboration, but there is this uh, joint effort from right-wing groups to jihadist group or extremists to—I mean—they are joined together. The common denominator is that the society that they are living are not the society they want, and they want to oppose that. And by doing so, um, the the actual um, strategies for it can be different. But the learning process of utilizing technology and what can function in terms of recruitment or inspiration, that I feel is becoming less isolated or, or restricted to one specific group than it was before. I see larger... Uh, or broader problems when it comes to extremism on the scale of extremism from right wing to left wing to to uh, Islamists is just that they appear to me as more open to learn from basically anyone to be as effective as possible. So ideological boundaries, the significance of religion, and those type of social factors. I, I'm not going to say that I know this, but it feels as if those the significance of them is becoming less important for many extremists, and it's more important to uh, be successful in whatever type of tactic or strategy you have. I don't know if you know what I mean. It's just that it seems to me as many groups and organizations are adapting and learning and are open for learning in order to promote their own cause rather than sticking to a ideological or religious identity. That's, that's sort of my observation uh, of it uh, in a very short sense. Mm -hmm. Very good, very good. So how about gaps for researchers, particularly for young researchers? Um, can we talk a little bit about the, the uh, importance of understanding uh, media and its role yeah. in extremism and some of the gaps that exist in the field, some of the spaces that need filled and some recommendations for those that are thinking about your, uh, a career uh, in the realm of uh, studying extremism and particularly with emphasis on those that uh, might be uh, interested in jihadism, but maybe a little weary on whether or not it's a good career choice, I think uh, we might add. Uh, that's, I don't know if I'm the one to give advice on this, but it's actually um, in terms of the research work uh, that comes to it and if people are interested in the type of data collection or monitoring um, uh, when it comes to accessing primary jihadi material, I guess that's that's uh, quite a specific area because it comes with not only possibilities of finding interesting results, but it comes with a personal investment in it that not necessarily is uh, healthy. And I think uh, being aware of the consequences, both in terms of online security and emotional investment in this material is uh, very, very important. That's my experience of it after all these years. Uh, secondly, uh, when it comes to research gap, I don't think 
Um, we don't really need more studies on um, the photographs of uh, that ISIS produce and how it uh, has a religious uh, significance. Those studies have been done already. What I think is becoming at least a research gap is the, again, we come back to this, this more interdisciplinary and holistic understanding of uh, the context in which media operations supporters, the official organization actually act in. I think it's really important to connect the dots between various aspects of the media dimension that surrounds ISIS. And that sounds very academic, sounds very abstract, but I, I generally mean that it is, um, it's going to be a couple of years ahead where we still struggle. You mentioned earlier in this episode that intelligence service and academics are always a step behind because the jihadists in this case are very technologically driven. They find solutions and we try to follow. Mm -hmm. And I think in order to um, get a step ahead and at least be neck to neck with, uh, with them, it's more important to actually find research and conduct research that combine the various dimensions and factors that are involved here. We shouldn't, as researchers, look specifically on one specific thing too much because we lose track of the context. So interdisciplinary work, uh, transdisciplinary work in terms of academia, where various disciplines come together, sociology, religion, media, whatever it might be, that type of work is what is being needed. Very good. Well, thank you very much. I want to let everyone know uh, that uh, Michael Crona is an absolute must follow uh, for those that are interested in this space on Twitter. Um, he's at global media underscore uh, Michael Crona on on that platform. Uh, the book is amazing. I haven't finished it yet, as I said, uh, but it is very informative and probably will pique creative ideas about how to proceed, not just for researchers, but also for practitioners. Um, and I thank you for your time today. And if there's anything you'd like to add uh, about uh, what we might expect uh, going forward or about what you're up to as a researcher and what people might be able to uh, expect uh, coming out from you uh, in the future uh, or those that you work with, uh, feel free to, to, to take us out. And thank mm. you for being here. No, thank you. I, I really hope to be able to chat with uh, again on this podcast, and I think that uh, my future endeavors will mainly contain continued monitoring, trying to follow these channels, and in terms of publications, uh, as an academic, there is a demand on us to produce journal articles, but we, I do have actually a contribution in a future um, um, a new edited volume where I'm a chapter contributor and the volume is about um, jihadi audiovisualities. Uh, how do uh, jihadi groups actually skillfully use uh, sound and images in their propaganda to make it as appealing as possible? The book will be out, I think it's December, uh, on Edinburgh University Press. Uh, that's it, I think, for now. <laughs> and hopefully I can come back in the future. Indeed, uh, and, and hopefully we can merge some of the research with practice at our organizational level and continue exactly. to learn from you and your work and potentially even work together. So hopefully yes. this is the beginning of more and more conversations. We thank you very much for sharing your experience you. and your insights with us. Take care and we'll talk soon. You too. Thank you.